remember a few years ago uh, in, on an Alpha course here at Peace and G's, we got to week two, week three, which is why did Jesus die? And we'd uh, gone through the talk, we were discussing why people had different opinions as to why they thought Jesus had died. And I'll never forget one particular woman just looked at me. And she looked at me and said, this is very strange stuff. And I said, what do you mean? She said, it's just really odd. The idea that the death of somebody 2,000 years ago should be relevant to us here is very strange. And I had to agree with her. What we're doing in these weeks leading up to Easter during Lent is we're looking at different pictures of what is referred to in Scripture as the mystery of the cross. We're given various images, various metaphors, very, uh, various motifs of the cross, various explanations of the cross, because no one explanation can actually explain what the cross fully means. And it's our prayer that as we go through this series week by week, we'll just capture something new each week as we look at different facets, as we look at the cross from different angles. I think it was Wednesday or Thursday morning this week, and I was listening to the radio, and the question was quite sharp, it was quite direct, it was quite to the point. The politician who was being interviewed was asked this question by the studio. Have you ever known a time in your lifetime when this nation has ever been so divided? I think it took a millisecond for the politician to answer with one short, simple no. The reality is that we are living in a culture, in a society, which has perhaps never been as divided as it is now. In all sorts of different ways, in all different shapes and sizes, our nation is quite divided. Parliament is divided, both at Westminster and at Holyrood. There's seemingly no way out of the Brexit uh, negotiation. People don't really know where to turn. I was talking with a politician this week, and uh, I said, what do you think about a second referendum? And I've never heard it expressed quite so clearly. They said to me, if there was a second referendum, I believe that we would see bloodshed on the streets. The north of England in particular, those constituencies that voted for Brexit, there would be riots in the streets. Quite sobering when a politician says that to you. We saw it in the Scottish debate for independence as well. We see it at Westminster, we see it at Holyrood, we see it in Brexit, we see it in the debates around Scottish independence. People almost at war with each other. We see it in politics across the pond, across the Atlantic. We see it in attitudes towards President Trump. And the fracture was seen again, sadly, as Paul has prayed already in Christchurch, New Zealand on Friday morning. Envy, fear, Anxiety, anger, terrorism, murder. The reality, however, is that it's just the latest symptom of the problem addressed by the central truth of Christianity. That at the very heart of who we are as human beings, something is broken. Something is fractured. 
Something is alienated. Indeed, we're alienated from each other and fundamentally from God himself, and that's why Jesus died on the cross. As we'll see week by week, there are these different pictures in the New Testament of the cross. Uh, There's uh, images from the law courts. There are images from the marketplace. There are images from the temple. They often involve long words like justification, substitution, propitiation, redemption, atonement, and righteousness. But perhaps the most popular of all the different pictures is the one that we're looking at this morning. It's the most popular because the pictures of the temple and the marketplace and the law courts are left behind. Here the picture is of a home and a family and a friendship and a relationship. It's the most popular and the one we identify with perhaps the easiest because it's the most personal. It speaks about restored relationships. It speaks about a friendship between God and humanity and indeed between humanity and itself. It's used four or five times in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul. We'll look at it in a couple of weeks uh, when we look at Romans chapter 5. But here in 2 Corinthians, we have perhaps the most comprehensive statement about the cross by Paul. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. It goes to the very heart of what we believe as followers of Jesus Christ. Heard this week about somebody who'd been brought up in a Christian home in Edinburgh. They'd been brought up going to church for years. They'd attended Christian conferences. They'd grown up through the youth group. They'd been a student in this particular church. And then one day, as they'd grown more cynical about church and grown more cynical about faith, somebody at a kitchen table had looked across the table at them and said, have you ever experienced the love of God? And this young woman had looked back and said, I've grown up in the church. I've been around the church all my life. I've been to conferences about church and Christianity. I know about God's love. But again, the question I asked, Have you ever experienced God's love? She said again, I've known about God's love for the whole of my life. The person just looked at her and said, I'm going to pray now that you will experience God's love. And there in the kitchen, a few months ago, this particular person experienced God's love, perhaps for the first time in their life. Because what we're talking about this morning is the fact that we can be known by God. That we don't just know about God, but that we can actually experience God's love in our lives. Remember when I was investigating the Christian faith when I was 16, 17, people at the church that I'd started to go to started talking about God in terms of a friendship, a relationship. It was the first time that I'd ever encountered that. I knew about God. I prayed most days. I'd been to church. But here were people who spoke about God in terms of a friendship, knowing God face to face, God being involved daily in their lives. There are some striking words that Jesus spoke on the last night before his death. In John chapter 15, verse 15, he says this. I no longer call you servants, he says. Instead, I've called you friends. It's quite a statement. 
I no longer call you servants who don't know what their master's doing, but instead I've called you friends. You and I, if we're followers of Jesus Christ, are invited into a relationship with him. He calls us his friends. We're called into a relationship. We're called not just to be followers or learners, disciples or adherents, not to believe doctrines or creeds or concepts or beliefs or facts, but fundamentally you and I are called into a relationship. That's the difference between other world faiths and Christianity. It's a relationship. It's not a religion. It's at the very heart of what we believe. In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes this letter to the church in Corinth to a church that's obviously having a few difficulties. There's precious little reconciliation going on. Relationships within the church and even with the Apostle Paul himself are difficult and fractious. There are divisions and jealousies and cliques and parties and factions. And it's precisely because of that that Paul writes this letter and writes about the importance of reconciliation. And he goes right to the heart of the problem in verse 19. The reason that Jesus died is because of sin. Now, this isn't a very popular idea in our society. If we're honest, it's not a very popular idea in our culture, and it's even not a very popular idea in church. We would much prefer to talk in terms of people being victims, people who make good or bad life choices, people whose rights have been infringed or taken away, We feel shame or guilt, perhaps, but we don't know why it's there or what to do about it. One journalist wrote this in the Sunday Times. They said, we take sin seriously only as a way of making life more exciting. We want to keep the sins, and by this he means the seven deadly kind, pride, greed, lust, envy, gluttony, wrath, and sloth, but only so we can have fun committing them. The idea that such acts may be insults to God, to the fabric of the world, seems to be lost forever. And yet repeatedly in the New Testament, the refrain occurs again and again. The reason that Christ died, the reason that Jesus was born, lived, and died, and was raised again, Christ died not as a good example, not as a mistake, not as a symbol, metaphor, or myth, or even to identify and empathize with us, but Christ died for one reason and one reason only. Christ died for sin. Christ died for sin. All of us in this church and out with this church are sinners. Now, again, that's not a very comfortable idea in our society, and it's not a very comfortable idea even in church these days to talk in these terms. The Episcopal Church in America, our sister church in the States, um, about 10, 15 years ago changed parts of their liturgy, uh, the words that people say in the equivalent of our 9 o'clock service, and they voted to remove the words miserable offenders as it might offend people. The Scottish church may recoil from the idea because, if we're honest, in our history, the idea of us being sinful has been overemphasized. What I refer to occasionally as worm theology. We are but worms, and there is no good within us. 
That's very prevalent in the Scottish church. And in response to that, recoiling from that, there are large swathes of the church in Scotland that actually have just downplayed the idea of sin. Well, God will forgive you. It's okay in the end. It'll be all right. Now, we have different responses. We may project. We may say, it's not my fault. We may rationalize. We may say, I had no choice. We may compare ourselves. I'm not as bad as Paul or Libby. We may suppress or deny. Guilty? Me? No. Or we may distract, filling our lives with material things, relationships, or any other form of escapism that we can find. But the reality is that if we're honest, there is a goodness deferential. There is a holiness differential between the people that we aspire to be and the people that we actually are. Never mind the people that God aspires for us to be, but we know, if we're honest, that we're not the people that we aspire to be or even that other people think we are or that we'd like them to think we are. The fact is that as human beings, we are sinful. Maybe like me, you've found or felt the irony of uh, being at the Edinburgh Tattoo and being surrounded by people from all over the world, seemingly coach parties from all over the world in Pakamak, whatever they are, and all standing and singing Amazing Grace that saved a wretch like me while being conscious that actually most people in that crowd on the esplanade at the castle are clueless as to the depth of the words that they're actually singing. You see, grace is only amazing if you take sin seriously. If you don't take sin seriously, grace ceases to be amazing. It becomes a right becomes an expectation. Well, of course God should forgive me. I'm nice. I live in Edinburgh. Subconsciously is what we think. Grace only remains as amazing if you take sin seriously. And yet Paul goes on to describe in this passage that God is the reconciler. That you and I can be forgiven because God acted in the person of Jesus Christ. A few years ago, a well-known um, evangelical Baptist church leader called Steve Chalk caused a bit of a stir. He said he no longer believed in one of the theories explaining the cross. Actually, what he said was that it wasn't the most helpful. Of these four or five different metaphors or motifs or images of the cross, he found as he was working at the time in a breakfast TV production, particularly around the events of Dunblane, and he was there the morning after, he recalls a cameraman who was working on the breakfast TV show turning to him and said, you believe in God, why has this happened? And he remembers thinking that this particular idea of the cross was the least helpful. He caused a huge controversy by saying that. 
The idea that penal substitution was no longer helpful did not go down well. It's parodied sometimes as the idea that a vengeful God punishes his son in order to forgive humanity. Steve Chalk was accused of likening it to cosmic child abuse. He didn't actually say those words. It was the people who accused him who said that phrase. He never actually said those words. Debates were held, ideas were exchanged, books were written, including one on my shelves that is a really thick book. It's one of the books that looks really impressive on my shelves. I read on, on Wednesday or Thursday at the start, there are 46 endorsements at the start of the book. All of them are written by men, curiously. And these 46 endorsements from church leaders, theologians, are telling you that this book is a really important book. So if you've got 46 eminent theologians and church leaders saying this is a really important book, it must be a really important book because it's very thick, a bit like me. And the book goes on to explain why this theory of penal substitution is really, really important. And yet, as I've thought about it, the picture of this parody of an angry, vengeful God punishing his son is not actually what the Bible teaches. Now, that's not helped sometimes by the stories and illustrations that people like me and Libby and Paul use in our talks. As I said at the start, any illustration can only give us one facet on the cross. But I remember as an evangelist, and I used to work as an evangelist, an itinerant evangelist, using a particular illustration. And the particular illustration involved a train in Canada going from one side of Canada to the other. And I used to use this story a lot in university missions. And I used to really go to town on it. And the train would be going from one side of Canada to the other. It was the Trans-Canadian Pacific Express. And it was a very fast train. It went across the Great Lakes. And as this train went across the Great Lakes, it would go through a series of swing bridges. Bridges that normally were one way to let the boats go up and down, but that were swung across so that the train could go on its journey. And on one particular dark, stormy night, this train was coming across one side of Canada to the other. And it was coming across at an incredible speed. The more I told this story, the faster the train went. And there was a signalman on one of the bridges who, for some reason, in the middle of the night, brought his son to work with him, his young toddler. I told this story when I didn't have any children and knew, didn't realize that if you were a dad, it's the last place that you would take your kid to. But the signalman had taken his son to work in the middle of the night, in the middle of the storm. And the, the train started to come down. The father was distracted. He turned to look at the workings of the swing bridge and to pull the lever whereby the swing bridge would go round. And in his distraction, the son went down the ladder from the signal box onto the bridge. The signalman looked. He was now faced with an agonizing choice. Should he pulled the lever and swing the bridge round. The train go across, but his son be killed on the bridge. 
Or should he leave the lever where it was? Allow his son to be safe, but commit hundreds of people to death as the train plunged down into the icy waters of the great lake. What a moral dilemma. The signalman had only a few seconds to think. They pulled the lever. The bridge swung round. The train ran across and carried on completely oblivious on its journey. But the signalman's son was dead. And that, I used to say, is like the cross. God is like that signalman. He had a choice, but he decided to sacrifice his son. The only problem with that story, powerful as it is, memorable though it is, it's not actually what the Bible teaches. Because Paul says that it's not a question of a distant father sending his son to death, but that God himself was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That if anything, it's not the signalman up in the box. The signalman is down on the bridge, standing next to his son, holding his son's hand as the train comes across. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. God dies on the cross. Unimaginable to a Jewish mind, unthinkable to a Muslim mind, God himself dies on the cross. God reconciles us to himself by dying on the cross. He doesn't just become like us. He becomes us. Not counting people's sins against them. God dies on the cross. But, thirdly, Christ is the means of reconciliation. Verses 14, 15, and 18 to 21. Jesus is the agent of our reconciliation to the Father. The Trinity is split in two or three on the cross. His death does mean that we can be forgiven. It's called the self-substitution of God. God dies in our place. It's a theme found again and again in literature. It's a theme found again and again in great literature, great art like the Star Trek films, in whatever, incarnation. It's the earlier incarnation, it's Mr. Spock who dies. In the more recent incarnation, it's Captain Kirk who dies, and the phrase is uttered as the Vulcan blessing is given. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the one, Jim. And Spock dies, or then in the latest version, Kirk dies because they remade it. Stories are told about the bridge on the River Kwai with a spade being missing and, and one being found, but but a captain, an officer, sacrificing himself so that people may die. It's there in C.S. Lewis. It's there in Tolkien. It's even there in Harry Potter. Remember that chapter, one of the later books called, intriguingly, King's Cross. 
where Dumbledore turns to Harry and says, your mother died to save you. If there is one thing Voldemort cannot understand, it's love. He didn't realize that love as powerful as your mother's love for you leaves its own mark. Not a scar, no visible sign, but to have been loved so deeply, even though the person you loved has gone, will give us some protection forever. Sacrificial death. Self-sacrificial death. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. In the New Testament, we're described as crossing over from darkness to light, from death to life, from sin to righteousness. Well, if you think about it on the cross, Jesus crossed over from light into darkness, from life to death, from holiness to sin. He became sin, Paul says in 2 Corinthians. He became, he didn't sin, but he became sin because he became us. And then finally, we become, in verse 20, Paul says, ambassadors of reconciliation. You and I, because we've been reconciled to God, are to live such lives that we tell other people about how they can be reconciled to God, but also we are to live as ambassadors of reconciliation. Wouldn't it be amazing in six months' time, 12 months' time, two years' time, if there was a solution to Brexit? Would, I mean, that would be amazing. But wouldn't it be amazing if in six months' time or 12 months' time or two years' time, the media were talking about the fact that, you know, there was one group of people that made a difference in the Brexit debate. There was one institution that made a difference in the Brexit debate. There was one group of people right across the UK who brought people together. And in the media, what they were saying was, You know, I don't think we'd have done this Brexit thing and survived it without the church in the United Kingdom. Wouldn't that be amazing? That would be a miracle. But that's what Paul is talking about here, for you and I to be ambassadors of reconciliation. That means that we live out lives of forgiveness. That means that we tell people about what Jesus means to us, but it also means that we live as people of peace. What would it mean in your office, in your workplace, in your school, in your surgery, in your hospital, in your college, in your university? Whenever people started talking about Brexit, rather than joining in the general gloom and despair... You were the one who brought people together, remainers and leavers. You were the one who said, well, maybe there's something good in this side, and maybe there's something good in this side. How about we try looking for the good in each other's argument? Imagine if that was said on question time one night. But that's what Paul is talking about, to to be ambassadors of reconciliation. To be the people who bring other people together. 
to be the people who draw society together. Because sin will always divide. Sin will always suspect. Sin will always fear. Sin will always make us anxious about the other, about the different. Paul says, you are to be ambassadors of reconciliation. Now, different parts of the church tend to focus on different bits. The liberal wing of the church, they just focus on the tell people to be nice to each other bit of reconciliation. The evangelical part of the church that we belong to, we tend to focus on the tell people about Jesus bit. That's why we talk about being a church that makes whole life disciples sharing the whole of the gospel because both are the gospel. It's telling people about Jesus, but it's also telling people then to live lives of forgiveness. If they're forgiven by Jesus, then we're supposed to be forgivers. If we're reconciled to God, then we're supposed to be ambassadors of reconciliation. What does it mean this week for you and for me to be ambassadors of reconciliation? What would it mean this week for you and I to live those lives that were so different, so distinctive, that God, Paul says in Corinthians, it's as if he's making his appeal through us. What would that mean on Monday? What would it mean on Tuesday? What would it mean on Thursday? 